Hello everyone once again to So Very Wrong About Games. It's a pleasure to join you. My name is Mark Bigney. I will be your co-host. With me as always is my loyal co-host, my better half, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well, although I, I think I have a bit of an admission, this introduction notwithstanding. Uh, after a series of listeners, more than one in several different places, it's tough to tell. They could all be the same people, aliases being what they are. I'm consistently misidentified as Mike Bigney. This is a very common thing. My devotion to my listeners is such that I think that I'm therefore obligated to change my name. This is going to be a bit awkward. I think the conversation with my parents is going to get a little bit weird. But on the bright side, I don't have any friends. So from now on, I, I think I just have to be Mike. That's that's how broadcasting works, right? My, my name is very common, and I usually get pushed out of the name anyway. So, you know, why not another one? Well, no, I think your your identity is just bleeding over and taking over mine. I think that's what's happening here. The blob of identity that is Walker. Yeah, exactly. Your your identity is metastasizing and it's just erased mine. So that that's how partnerships are supposed to work, right? I think so. Yeah, and that well, that's certainly how I play co-op games. Well, maybe we'll be more welcomed in more groups from now on then. Yeah, it'll certainly simplify things. There you go. Well, with that in mind, we are going to be talking about games today, unlike other other days. Our feature game this week is going to be Deception Murder in Hong Kong and its recently released expansion, Undercover Allies. A feature topic this week is going to be hidden game states, namely hidden roles and hidden movement mechanics. We're going to talk about other hidden stuff later, but that's the hidden stuff we want to talk about today. So what did you play this week, Walker? Well, I'm going to go through the list because I made an effort to play not the usual thing. So I'm just going to go through the quick lineup and then I'm only going to talk about certain ones. It was Rising Sun, Domain, Codenames, Smash Up, Champions of Midgard, Tigers and Euphrates, and Star Trek Ascendancy. And I'll start with Rising Sun, because we both played it, and it was only one playthrough, but I'm really enjoying it so far, and uh, I'm looking forward to playing it again. What did you think on the first playthrough? So we didn't play it together. We played on the same copy. Uh, In our local group, one person got his copy, and so suddenly he's everyone's best friend. And I enjoyed it. It's It feels very, very much like Blood Rage in a lot of ways. That classic, uh, that now classic kind of Eric Lang asymmetry was there in force. In some ways, though, I vastly preferred Blood Rage. And one way was because I felt that the way that the game introduced special powers via the so-called season cards was less compelling in Rising Sun than it was in Blood Rage in part because I do enjoy the drafting in Blood Rage, and also because in Rising Sun you just have fewer opportunities to get new cool stuff. Uh, Now, maybe the one play I had was an aberration, maybe in other games people are drowning in season cards, but basically in Rising Sun I felt like I had a small number of season cards and I had my faction special power, and that's basically what I had. Whereas in, in every game of Blood Rage I get to craft my own set of unique toys. And... Part and parcel of that is I can pivot. If in ages one and two I'm pursuing a certain strategy, in age three in Blood Rage I can pivot and pursue a different strategy if the cards come up, if I know I need to deny these cards to somebody else, or if it's just the circumstances permit. Whereas in Rising Sun I felt a little bit more locked in to the way that I was going to play, which is, you know, in and of itself is fine. Uh, But it, it felt a little less dynamic in that sense. And in general, in point of fact, in Rising Sun, uh, that lack of dynamism is sometimes to its strength. The role selection in Rising Sun I quite enjoyed. And I've, I've complained before that in role selection games, you really want to make it so that the people selecting the role have some kind of incentive to do so, precisely because they're going to get something that other people don't. And that's very much the case in Rising Sun. You know, you, the, they're called mandates there. The mandate you select gives you a rather large bonus compared to everyone else. Sometimes it's huge. There's one mandate in particular uh, where 
only you get to do something. There's another mandate where everyone gets to do something pathetic and you get to do something amazing. Uh, so in terms of the core mechanics uh, of the role selection, I thought it was great. In terms of how it doled out special powers, it was good, not great. I prefer Blood Rage for that. What were your impressions of it? I was going to go the opposite way. You said it was less dynamic. I, th- I was thinking in order to excel at Rising Sun, you are going to need to be more dynamic. I thought it was really neat how the theme worked use this yin and yang symbol f- to form alliances. And I felt that was like sort of the th- whole theme of the game is balance, is that you're going to have to balance your strategy throughout all the different mechanisms in order to score well. That certainly wasn't my experience playing it. My experience playing it, the... So, okay, there are a number of things, and I I, I am actually glad we're going to go a little bit more in depth in, into the game because I think it, it warrants the discussion. We're probably going to talk about it more later once we have our own copies. Rising Sun misrepresents itself, I think, in a couple of ways, one of which I'm going to blame the publisher and designer for, and I think it's a fault of the game, and one of which is absolutely fine. The way in which it's fine is it looks like a game where you're going to score points through area control and winning fights. And And I don't mean to trivialize the extent to which you are indeed going to get points by doing those things. But it is the case that in the game I played, the players who did very well did so by pumping unexpected victory point engines. And it's not even as straightforward as the, the the way it works in Blood Rage. In Blood Rage, if you get a card that says you get points for people dying, you go off and you get people to die. And that's fine. And that, again, that's one of the strengths of the game, different ways to get to victory. But in Rising Sun, it has that same kind of indirect way of scoring points, but they're a little bit more obscure and sometimes not terribly well presented. In other words, the game, through its setting, through its pieces, through its even through its core mechanisms kind of sets up expectations about how you're going to do well. And I personally found in my playing that those expectations were not met out. And the way to do well is to have a laser-like focus on, okay, what's going to get me points on a very sort of transactional, short-range basis and maximize that as best as you humanly can and ignore all the rest because the game is very, very good at presenting noise and miscommunicating how you're going to win. Does that make any sense to you? It does make sense. But I think long-term, I think once everyone knows what all the victory point conditions are and how you score points, and there was talk about how the negotiation is not going to be a big aspect of the game, but I think that's mostly because we're all learning all these new mechanisms. I think once all these new mechanisms and and cards all become more common to us, I think the negotiation is going to come creep back into the game, and I think it will open itself up more with more plays. I'm hopeful that with more plays, this element of miscommunication of victory conditions or, or, or frustrated expectations will indeed go away. It's it's unusual because I was hoping that the game would be more accessible than Blood Rage because Blood Rage being a drafting game is somewhat opaque to new players. Like they don't know what to take because they don't know what's in the deck. And you can't really go through the entire deck and, and spell out what, what's going to be in there. Rising Sun, with the exception of a couple of end game victory point cards that you really ought to show people at the very beginning. You know, there's some cards that are going to be worth 12 or more points. And it it would be good if at the start of the game you, you just spend a couple seconds saying, okay, guys, these are the ones that are going to be available two rounds from now. Keep that in mind when pursuing your strategies. But let's talk about the negotiation. I was, in this respect, I got more or less exactly what I thought was going to happen. When reading the rules for, for Rising Sun, 
It's important to note that practically on every page, several times there are these inset boxes that say, this would be a great time to offer bribes. This allows for more negotiation. You know, talk with your friends and offer coins to these various things. And here's my experience, and maybe this is a prejudice. My experience is that when a game purports to be a game with a lot of negotiation, but the rulebook feels the need to remind you all the time where negotiation can happen, generally it's not a negotiation game at all, or more much of one at all. I found the so-called tea ceremony phase where you're, where you're forming alliance, alliances to be relatively trivial. Either you want to be in an alliance or you don't. And if you, want, if you don't want to be in an alliance, there's not really much anyone can offer you to incentivize you to be part of an alliance. And if you want to be part of an alliance, a crappy alliance is better than no alliance at all by a significant margin. And so the way these interests align doesn't really leave a whole lot of wheeling and dealing. Was, was your play different? No, it was the same, but I'm, I'm going to fall back on the same thing. I just think with more gameplays, when you understand exactly how the game is going to progress and what all the cards mean and what an alliance with a particular person is going to mean for you, I just think it will make, it'll make more sense with more gameplays. I hope, but what you're allowed to trade in the game is money and Ronin. Money is not sufficiently tight in the game to make offering cash a huge difference. And Ronin is, is a weird kind of very indirect measure of force. And to make Ronin work, you need money anyway. So it's, it's this bizarre other currency in the game. And generally speaking, the again, if you're, if you're maintaining a focus on the victory conditions, if I'm in a position where I can score a couple points, there's not really any amount of money that someone could offer me to disincentivize me to go do that thing. And so either the game needs a kind of asymmetry where one faction is drowning in cash and a lot of other factions are cash-starved. Uh, Dune does this in a variety of ways, for example, or Rex. That was their, that's the way they try to do it. In Rising Sun, the asymmetry, and I've talked about this before when talk, talking about trading games, Rising Sun's asymmetry doesn't lead itself to negotiation. When you ally with me, the only, ally, the only uh, a faction power, by the way, that feeds into the negotiation the alliances at all, there's only one of them, and that's that's the faction that can play whatever mandate it wants. During the rule selection phase in Rising Sun, you know, you, you, you draw from a deck of cards, and you, you pick one, and that's the role that everyone does. And one of the factions doesn't need to pick one, they can just play any mandate face down and say, this is whatever I say it is. And so they, that power, that asymmetry introduces grist for the negotiation, for, for the diplomacy, for the dealmaking. None of the other powers do. I didn't see a single season card that did that. Granted, we only played with the so-called beginner set. None of the other faction powers do that, and that's not going to change. And so again, this just goes to show that this is less of a negotiation game that it's trying to present itself to be. I hope you're right. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that, you know, on the, the third or fourth play with experienced players, you know, the scales are going to fall from my eyes and suddenly it's a freewheeling negotiation thing. Uh, and that would indeed make it potentially more interesting. But as it stands, I, I thought that it was uh, a, a game that did role selection well, and the special powers were kind of neat, but didn't really do a whole lot else particularly excellently. So I, I felt it was good, not great. Oh, and it looks beautiful. No denying that. I think we should leave it for some more plays and leave it for a feature game. Sure. And let's move on to a, another game of the week. Sure, Absolutely. This week I played uh, Sid Meier's Civilization A New Dawn again. I talked about this during our uh, year-end roundup. It was my biggest surprise of 2017. I wasn't expecting anything out of it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I continue to enjoy it, but some of my initial concerns, I think, have uh, borne fruit. 
During my initial plays, I was a little bit worried what would happen if all the players, or indeed even one or two of the players, started pursuing an aggressive military strategy. I thought that the game system would kind of fall apart at that, at that stage. And sure enough, that seems to be mostly my impression. It's the case that if the victory conditions and players' interests align in such a way that it's all about winning fights, it's just going to be a seesaw back and forth of defense not really being viable and everyone just dive-bombing out of the skies and, and taking whatever they want, more or less. Now, ideally, and, and so far my experiences have been this way, normally that's only the very end stage of the game. It's when people have upgraded their military capability in A New Dawn to the point where defense is largely impossible. And to a certain extent, the other clever bits of the game, the the, the whole uh, card track system, s offset that a little bit, but not as much. Uh, so basically, if you've got aggressively minded players, the last stage of the game can get a little bit weird and wonky in an unsatisfying way. I still enjoy the game. I'm still going to keep it in rotation, I think. Uh, but my initial concerns were that it was clever, but not brilliant enough to overcome some of the, the, the military shortcomings of a lot of games of this type is, is largely true. It At least, I can say this, it never descends into a slog. It's probably going to work itself to its conclusion because it's not like one of those long, drawn-out, turtling kind of affairs. It's just that the, uh, the offense gets a little bit weird and uh, kind of removed from the map, and people are just exercising these bizarre military effects. Uh, so... Yeah, A New Dawn, it's more or less uh, what I thought it was. Still clever, still enjoyable, but uh, the military endgame can get a little bit unsatisfying. All right, next up for me will be Domain. It's a an older game. It's a great, uh, where you're building these walls and the walls are all neutral, so anyone can use them. So it leads to really interesting parts at the end of the game where a whole domain can be created just by the fact that people have walled off their own kingdoms and suddenly this huge kingdom is formed in the middle by the one remaining person. And that's how it worked out in the one game we played. The reason I'm bringing this game up is just that when you play these older games, you really see some of the faults that they had in design, like the how newer games have you know really picked it up. In Domain, there's a certain card that is the Rebellion card. And not only does it take one of your knights away, but it adds it to the other side. So not only is it a, a, a complete swing of, you know, two, it also pretty well dictates your next turn because you're going to have to build that knight back. So not only are you down one and they're up one, but now your whole next turn is also dictated. So it's just, it's really interesting when you go back to these older games and, and see how, how lucky we are that these designers are really, you know, improving their game, literally. And the designer of Domain was actually Andreas Seyfarth, the same guy who gave us Puerto Rico. There you go. Yeah. Back in the day, he was a heavy hitter. I don't know that he's done anything recently that we should have our eyes on, but yeah, such, such, such is the march of time. That's not to say that everything ages poorly, Walker. No, like, just look at me, for God's sakes. No, no. I was talking about something else on your list. I was talking about the greatest game ever made. Tigers and Euphrates. Yes, yes. Do we want to talk about Tigers and Euphrates again? Well, I mean, look, there's not uh, just, and it, it's worth, it's worth just <laughs> flagging again that Tigers and Euphrates is the greatest game ever made. Yeah, well, I think we both agree with this and anyone who doesn't, of course, is wrong. But yes, Tigers and Euphrates, we played it again. Every, like, every time I play it, I, I gush about how great and how, how there is this level to Tigers and Euphrates that, that is very reminiscent of chess, where you can just lose yourself in the optimum moves and, you know, where the game can take you. I Once again, I love playing it. Yeah, it's amazing. 
We also were involved uh, together in that game of Codenames that you were talking about, and uh, Codenames continues to please. This was this was the first time in a while, actually, that we were introducing relatively new gamers to Codenames, and it just reminded me how accessible it is and how it's a great way to get a whole bunch of people from, uh, uh, around the table, and they can range everywhere from non-gamers to hardcore gamers, strangers and friends and long-term acquaintances, and it's still going to work. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a session of code names fail. No, nope. like I said, I brought this across 15 different countries last year, and it worked, you know, broke the language gap, broke every social gap, gap there was, and it worked every time, and I never had a bad experience with code names. Next on my list is Star Trek Ascendancy, and I'm bringing this one up only because it's yet... Uh, there's there's no real game mechanisms that stand out. They have this great game mechanism about going into warp and how you travel through warp. I think that's fantastic, but I'm mostly bringing it up as just one of the, yet another one of these games that is you mostly play it for the experience, like TI3. There's nothing groundbreaking in TI3 as opposed to game mechanics, but it's just the overall experience in Star Trek Ascendancy. If if you enjoy anything about Star Trek, you'll love this game. It's got all the cards in there that, you know, bring back memories up to five armies now, so it's it's getting pretty interesting. So you played with the expansions? We did. We had someone playing the Cardassians and someone playing the, the Ferengi. And once again, I fell back on my old Klingon war armada. It sure. It was good. It was good times. Do I need to play this? You've compared it to TI3, which makes me think no, I don't. No, I really don't think you should. Good. Like I said, there are no game mechanics other than the, it's just a slog, another space 4X slog game. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll stay away. This was not a particularly good week for gaming for me, and partially as a result, I broke out uh, one of my favorite solitaire games, uh, namely One Deck Dungeon. This was put out a couple of years ago by Chris Cheslick at Asmati Games. Um, full disclosure, Chris and I are personal friends back from when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, but I paid for my copy like everybody else, and uh, I loved the game before I was a, uh, a full-time shill. I mean, board game journalist. And it's, I, I think, it's not my favorite solitaire game, but pound for pound, it is absolutely my favorite solitaire game. It's a small box game. It's just a deck of cards and some dice. And a lot of other solitaire games that I love, things like Doom Rock, things like uh, Too Many Bones, things like Warfighter or uh, Thunderbolt Apache Leader. There's a lot of components. There's a lot of setup. You really need to be spend a lot of time carefully manipulating a whole bunch of stuff. But One Deck Dungeon gets you in the action right away. It's a dice game in the best sense in, in that there are lots of ways to mitigate and manipulate your dice. So it's not just a question of roll to succeed. It's fun. It's great. It's got a lot of, a lot of variety. It's got uh, a campaign mode if you really want one, but my views on campaign modes, I think at this point, are relatively well established. It's also got great art. It's it's a wonderful game. It's got a recently published expansion called Forest of Shadows that I haven't had a chance to try. But if you at all like small box uh, games, if you want to try something solo, it also plays with two players. If you're inclined towards that, uh, you, can, you can do a whole lot worse than One Deck Dungeon. I recommend it a great deal. And uh, it's it's a great game to pull out when you just want 30 to 45 minutes of solo gaming and there's nobody else around to divert you. So that's One Deck Dungeon. One Deck Dungeon. The last game I'm going to talk about is just Smash Up. And the only reason I'm talking about this one is because if you enjoy Smash Up or anything about Smash Up, you should try Blood Bowl, the card game. It's a fantastic game. Uh, same spin on sort of the smash up thing where everyone's playing cards on a certain field to get the the highest count and i really don't i don't want to keep bashing on games like i always do but i really don't think i want to play smash up ever again yeah and i felt uh even i felt blood bowl team manager was 
kind of like a, a, an overdressed battle line or shot and totten. I, I do like the sort of here are these fields play cards to contest the fields, but I really don't think it's been done better than Battle Line or Shot and Ton. But I do agree with you. Between Blood Bowl Team Manager and Smash Up, I would definitely play Blood Bowl Team Manager. In fact, there are many other things that I'd rather play instead of Smash Up. True, right. Shot and Ton, I have to give it props as well. For the time that it takes is is a very good game as well. It does, you know, it, it accomplishes what it needs in a nice short time. It's an excellent game. You haven't tried Shot and Ton and give that a whirl as well. Do you have anything on your list, Mark? No, that's the end of my list. That was in your list. So on to news and why it doesn't matter. So in our usual news segment, we're going to have this every week because it's going to happen every week. What company did Asmos Day take over <laughs> this week? This week, Asmos Day took over what was left of Mayfair Games, which was pretty well lookout. Yeah, I'm really, honestly, I'm really sad about this. When the prequels were terrible, I didn't say that my childhood was ruined. But to a certain extent, now that Mayfair is dead, I kind of feel like a bit of gaming history is being lost. Mayfair is the company that first localized Tigers and Euphrates for the American market. For a long time, theirs was, theirs was the only English edition available. This is the company that brought Catan over to the American market. Now, I don't have any positive associations with that game, but whatever. It's, it's seminal for the hobby. You know, back in the day, it was just them. And then shortly thereafter, it was them and Rio Grande. And now those two companies, Rio Grande is a shell of its former self, largely due to the semi-retirement of Jay Tomlinson. Whatever, that's fine. You go you go do you. But, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't just that. It was also the Crayon Rails games. It was a whole bunch of other stuff that Mayfair was really, really seminal at a very important time in the development of hobbyist gamings. And now they're done. It's, uh, yeah, I don't, look, when, when, when Asmodee bought FFG, I realized that that was a major market development in terms of distribution and all that stuff. But I didn't feel like it was a major moment in gaming history. Mayfair, despite the fact that it is it has been moving far fewer units than FFG has for a long time, I still feel that this is a big, big deal. And uh, I'm a bit verklempt over the matter, to be honest. Well, it might be for the better, right? Maybe the... They said they were gonna. They might bring over some employees, so maybe the employees that were being just you know held back a bit due to like funds or lack of support are now going to be moved into a, a, a business that will give them all the support they need. Maybe. And maybe there's some designs that were on the back burner there that didn't come to fruition because of funding or whatever. Now they're going to get new eyes and maybe. new support. You can just, always hope for the best. It is what it is. Let me be melancholy. Yeah, let I'm me, sorry. Let me engage in whatever coat. Look, I'm, I'm sitting here. I've got my old man cardigan on. I just, I just need to be protected against the sands of change for just a couple moments here. This is a ma- this, this, this is a major development. Now, it's also somewhat unfortunate for us Canadians, though, because you know, as more and more companies get swallowed up by Asmodee, Asmodee titles are not well stocked in Canada. I don't know what it is about the distribution. I don't know what it is, but I've heard from several different retailers, and I don't spend a lot of time talking about retailers, talking about what a pain in the ass it is to deal with any Asmodee products. And so, in many ways, it's easier for Canadian stores to stay current with stock from really, really tiny outfits like Mayfair had become than it is to get the latest and greatest or even older titles from Asmodee. So I'm not sure it's necessarily going to pay dividends for for people like you and me north of the border, but... No, I've heard the same. I'm still sad. In other news, my name is Mike now. I'm not Mark anymore. Just a reminder, I'm Mike. So be it. So be it. More the merrier. Uh, Now, Walker, do you have any news about cons you'd like to share with us? Yes. For those going to conventions, there are two. There's one coming up here in Kingston, Ontario soon called KingCon. And the big one, which is striving to be the biggest in uh, Canada, which will be Breakout in Toronto, is coming up in March. So I'm going to be in Breakout 
in March. So if you want to come and play a game, that would be fantastic. I'm, I'm going to try to convince Walker uh, to wear a giant t-shirt with our logo on it, just a big yellow shirt that says swag in the front. So you can come and harass him and tell him uh, how wrong he is about everything. Because I think that uh, that Walker needs to become a media darling and everyone needs to go. I also hear that if you're a leper, if you touch the hem of his robe, that you can be instantly cu- cured. So I think you should swarm him if you ever see him in public. These things are all true. Yeah. What have I got? Last thing, Wrinkle in Time by USA Opley. I'm only bringing it up because US, uh, Wrinkle in Time was a fantastic book. I might have been, I'm trying to think back, but it's been decades and decades ago that it might have been the first book that I read on my own. It's before you forgot how to learn to read, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I'm really hoping that the movie's going to be great. I have no hope for, you know, that being said, I really shouldn't say that because the Harry Potter card game has got good buzz. Like the... Which one? The one from USA Opley. Oh, okay. The, the sort of legacy style. I haven't had a chance to try it. I've only heard good things. So maybe I'm hoping this Wrinkle in Time game will be good. I'm I'm kind of in a, a similar situation. USA Opoly acquires so many licenses. Sometimes they produce something of a license I really like. The only one that I'm particularly in that moment here is there's, I, I'm a huge fan of Steven Universe. Steven Universe, I think, is the best show on air currently. And uh, there's a there's a Steven Universe monopoly, but I can't bring myself to to try that. I just I refuse. It can't be any good. No, but <laughs> no, I really can't. So I respect I respect the, the awkward position you're in. Final bit of news uh, that I have is there's been development in the let's say ongoing disaster that is Games Workshop's public relations. Let me take you back, listeners, to the uh, hallowed era of 2009, back when I think Walker could still read back when I shaved on a regular basis and when dinosaurs still roamed the Earth. Just after the release of Space Hulk 3rd Edition, and we've both made our positions on Space Hulk very, very clear about how much we, we love the game, when Space Hulk 3rd Edition was released, as is frequently the case on BoardGameGeek, you saw a profusion of all the things you normally do, player aids, game summaries, things like that. Uh, games Workshop took offense to this, and they sent a blanket cease and desist order to BoardGameGeek saying that they needed to pull more or less anything that Games Workshop had on anything. Now, whether or not BoardGameGeek fought back with appropriate ardor is a matter of great historical controversy. I was there when it happened. and Basically, the recourse was as follows. Number one, all files from from Games Workshop games got pulled and the file sections got blocked. So all the stuff that people had uploaded previously for Games Workshop games, that all got yanked and you couldn't upload new files again. Number two, a lot of people went and raided a whole bunch of Games Workshop games of one just for that purpose, uh, which I, I, I thought that was a relatively silly thing to do. That's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, after all, your objection is that Games Workshop has made the Board Game Geek database less useful. Why then make the games database even less useful by rating something a one, even if you don't think it deserves a one? But I digress. Anyway. After some uh, renewed negotiations and contact with uh, the new Games Workshop community manager, uh, BoardGameGeek is now, once again, accepting file submissions for uh, Games Workshop games. All that it took was nine years. So if you are looking for player summaries or player aids for Games Workshop games, maybe they'll show up. Now, how long this is going to last, who knows? Because it might just be one photoshopped logo on a player aid before this entire thing gets gets falls uh, apart again falls apart again it, games workshop is justly infamous for having an overactive legal team and wanting to protect its intellectual property in ways that are possibly short-term 
not even short-term advantageous, but definitely disastrous in terms of maintaining uh, fan goodwill. But who knows? Uh, we'll see. I'll, uh, I'll, I, I check the uh, Shadespire entry on BoardGameGeek not too infrequently. I think I've got a subscription set up. So if uh, new files get added, I'll take a look at what, what shows up there and see if this uh, detente continues. But I thought that was an interesting bit of news. All right, so that's the news this week. On to our feature game, which this week is Deception Hong Kong. So Deception Murder in Hong Kong was put up by Toby Ho and uh, Gray Fox Games in 2014. And I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about where the design came from and situating it in terms of a sort of uh, development of, of, of gaming ideas. First, there was Apples to Apples. And, uh, you know, say whatever you want about Apples to Apples, but it's very popular for reasons that are relatively easy to understand, but it's it's got a number of serious gameplay problems. The one that I object to the most strongly of all of them is that since every round there's only one judge, there's only one person making association between different words, because it's a word association game. Someone says something and then you play word cards to associate that, but there's only one person who makes the final call every round. And so it tends to generate a lot into in-jokes or references that only one person gets, or someone being capricious and arbitrary. It's like, hey, I like waffles, so waffles will always be my answer to everything, which, you know, is, is legitimate according to the stipulations of the game, but is, is a little less satisfying. It was actually redeveloped as a side note um, in a game called Attribute, which was published in uh, 2007 by one of my favorite game designers, Marcel André Casasola-Mercle. Attribute is great. If you want an apples to apples that's actually a game, try Attribute. It's sadly out of print, but it's a great game. Anyway. In uh, 2008, Dixit was released, and Dixit is a more freeform association game. It's not about words to words. It's someone proposing a topic and then people playing pieces of relatively abstract art to make those association. The biggest advantage that it has, independently of it being words to pictures instead of words to words, is everyone gets to be a judge. Everyone gets to vote on or, or, or put in what they think the, the appropriate or best answer is. However... It still rides on a very specific zone of ambiguity. You know, you have to be, if you pick a topic that's too clear, then things kind of fall apart for a round. If you pick a topic that's too vague, it also kind of falls apart uh, a little bit. And sometimes because you've got the wrong people around the table or because someone isn't able to ride that specific line of ambiguity, sometimes I find the game somewhat unsatisfying. Then there was Mysterium five years later, the, the original uh, Eastern European version. It kept the ambiguity, namely it's still about pictures, but now it's pictures to pictures, and that communication is still ambiguous because you only communicate using these relatively abstract pieces of art. But the determination mechanism, what you're trying to get people to match to, is no longer ambiguous. It's very specific. I need you to guess a specific thing, but I'm only able to communicate to you via playing this, this abstract card. Mysterium is a great game. It's very, very cool, and getting that kind of communication properly is a very interesting challenge. Codenames, released a couple years after Mysterium, is also similar in that, again, you're trying to communicate via very, very restrictive rules. But instead of picture-to-picture picture that Mysterium had, we're now back in codenames to word-to-word. Word. You give a word clue and you're trying to get people to select a specific words. We've talked about how codenames is great. But let me situate Deception now in terms of this overall development. Deception keeps pretty much the same fundamental structure as Mysterium. There is one person who's giving clues and it's about you know, vague uh, communication, but instead of pictures to pictures, it's words to pictures now. You're trying to give people clues by a very, very, very constrained setup, which Walker's going to elaborate on, to all these other pictures that people have. And so it uses some of the same, uh, some of the innovations that Codenames has, but uses it in a more kind of Mysterium kind of structure. And on top of that, it loads on 
hidden roles, which we're going to talk about later on in the episode. See, you see how everything hangs together? Yeah, we tied it. It's like Segway Masters. Wrapped it up in a little bow. Anyway, so Walker's going to, uh, having, having given you that sort of development of the idea, and for what it's worth, all of these latest games, Mysterium, Codenames, Deception, I think are all excellent, excellent, excellent games. They're very accessible, various level of, of gaminess, and we'll, we'll situate Deception a little bit more in terms of how gamey it is compared to the other ones. But uh, if you at all enjoy this kind of uh, this kind of process, if you've got somebody and you want to wean them off things like apples to apples, I think any of these games are a good candidate. So why don't why don't you go in a little bit more detail about how does, how a game of deception works, Walker? So here we go. In deception, at the beginning, everyone has handed out these roll cards. Either you're going to be the in a basic game, someone's going to be the forensic scientist, one person's going to be the mur- murderer. There are other roles, but we'll just stick with these two. And then whoever is the forensic scientist flips over their card, and then everyone's dealt. Uh, four weapons and four pieces of evidence. And then you do the usual hidden de- uh, social uh, role game where everyone close their eyes, tap, tap, tap on the table. The murderer will open his eyes and the forensic scientist will see who the murderer is. The murderer will then point to one weapon and one piece of evidence. And this is what the forensic scientist is going to get everyone to try to guess. And how is he going to do this? After everyone opens their eyes, he's going to use the series of tiles that are very ambiguous and have either, you know, a cause of death, you know, and they all have different words on them. It's either going to be a place or all sorts of different things. He's going to place one token on each of these cards, choosing one word out of that best suits his situation for these two cards and try to get after a series of storytelling rounds, people all have one badge that they can throw in the middle and make a guess on the weapon and the piece of evidence. And if they're right, they're right. If they're wrong, then the murderer wins. As soon as I read the description of this game, I was in. That was the hook. It was the so normal social deduction game where you have one person like Mysterium trying to get people to guess a certain thing, but then there's that murder in there that is the evil person that's that he knows what's going on and he's trying to mislead everyone. I thought that is such a great part of the game that I am totally in for this. Yeah, I agree. The hidden roles really helped to make it sing. I was I was actually sold additionally on the fact that again it's it's this sort of development on what kind of weird communication roles does the clue giver have and what are they trying to clue people into. And that asymmetry of information presentation and just subtle ways that it differs from all these other games that I know I already love uh, really helped sell it. What I wasn't expecting was that I was expecting this to play kind of like a Mysterium variant independently of, of, of the hidden roles, but it actually has a number of clever bits that I think are really, really worth noting. One of them is that, like Mysterium, it's very easy to modulate the difficulty. You can The number of cards in front of everybody can go up or down based on how hard you want to make the game because the game feels very, very different with the different player counts. The game plays from basically, at this point, 5 to 14 players, which is a huge range, I think that it works just fine at 5. I haven't played it with 14, but I've played it with uh, 11 a couple of times. And it gets very noisy and very raucous, but it still fundamentally works if people know how to manage the tempo. And that's one of the things that I'd like to talk about. You talked about story time. This is what I call that stage of the game. Uh, This is not actually uh, what it's called in the rules. It's called the presentation, which is probably more accurate but less evocative. 
And uh, the way that this works, and I, I, I'm, I've never imported this to other games, but sometimes I might be temp tempted to. Because during the presentation phase, what happens is everyone gets up to 30 seconds, more or less. You can fiddle with the amount of time if you want. During which they cannot be interrupted, and they get to say whatever they want about the state of the game. When I first read about this, I thought that this was going to be stupid and tedious. But in point of fact, I don't think it is. One of the things that it does is, first of all, it helps the tempo of the game. It helps give a nice little cap to a round. The game lasts three rounds. And so it really, really helps with the sort of ebb and flow of this is the end of the round, and so everyone gets to present how they think the round went. And it also really, really helps people come out of their shell. If you've got a table full of, game, uh, full of gamers or even just a table full of people, some people are not going to feel comfortable putting forward their own theories or they might try, but they get drowned out. We all know that certain <clears throat> genders tend to interrupt certain <clears throat> other genders more often than not. And it's really, really helpful for everyone at the table to just have, this is your 30 seconds, say whatever you want. Now, if they want to pass right away, they can do that. They'd be like, I don't have anything else to add go away. But for the kind of people who would like to be able to put things but don't want to step on anyone else's toes, it's great. It gives them a moment to shine if they want to. It doesn't force them to shine if they don't want to. I, th I think it's actually really, really good for the dynamics of the game. How do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, that's the point I wanted to make. This is really a game that you're going to get into it as much as you put into it. I don't mean that how I usually mean, like there aren't multiple levels of difficulty or, or hidden things, although there is that in this game, like, you know, in Cockroach Poker, you know, there's a lot more game there than it seems. You can make it this game of just lying or whatever, or you can look in front of you. It's like, oh, he said it's a cockroach. I don't have any. I can call him on that. Or, you know, purposely pass cards. You know, there's a hidden depth that I don't mean that in this thing, as in if you go right into this game and, you know, you're the investigator and you like, and you, you know, are boisterous and you want to get in there, you're going to get a lot more enjoyment out of this game. Yeah, so deception in introducing this this presentation, I think, really, it, it, it displays, that's the kind of thing that lets a game designer display that they really understand the social dynamics of the game that they've designed, and I think it's really, really helpful. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the great associations that you can make in this in, in deception, because sometimes it's relatively straightforward. Sometimes you can work on a relatively pedestrian level. It's like, okay, uh, I see that the murderer has selected that the crime was committed by slitting someone's throat. Okay, that means that the cause of death is the throat the throat being slit. Some of them are relatively straightforward, and if you just want to work on a, on a relatively stable, sort of clear-headed, obvious path in Deception, you can do that. But some of the most clever plays I've seen in Deception are those leaps of intuition, because you have to work with what you're given. In Deception, you draw these random scene tiles, and maybe they don't include clues that are straightforward and obvious. And let me just use an example from a session that we played the other day, and you can talk about your own thought process. I was the murderer. I had selected as a piece of evidence that had been left behind an hourglass. And you, as the investigator, were, were not drawing anything that seemed to lead to hourglass. But you made a very, very good connection in our game of Deception. What was that? It was... Uh... Not depletion, but... You don't even remember. No, I don't even Here remember. Here I am teeing you, you up. Here, oh, te well, you this is what I get. I spend 30 seconds stroking your ego, talking about this great play you made, and you don't even remember what happened. This is disgusting. It was passage of time. It was sort of not disintegration. It was decay. Decay. You were saying it. that at the, at the, you were saying that the state of the body, you were saying the state of the crime scene showed decay. And everyone, everyone else at the table didn't pick up on it. Maybe that's your fault. Maybe it's theirs. They they thought, they assumed that that meant the corpse. Well, I, I, I just want to make sure, because I don't think we, we, we said it enough, that once the forensic scientist is picked, they are not allowed to talk. All they can do is put these tokens on the cards, and that's all they can do. And that was just another quick point I wanted to make, is that 
it's not so much what they choose on the card as what they didn't choose on the card. Exactly. Well. Exactly. But in your you you basically well, maybe not. Maybe this was just dumb luck. Maybe I was impressed for no reason. You're really training me not to take you very seriously, Walker. That's that's very good. Maybe I should learn the lesson. But you weren't getting anything that obviously cued, uh, clued to an hourglass. So instead, you had this thing which mostly, most of the time would be interpreted as, you know, the state of the corpse. But instead, you thought, how can I communicate hourglass? And you thought, okay, the passage of time... Decay. You, it was a very sort of sick transit Gloria Mundi moment. Uh, although, again, uh, you're, you, perhaps you're showing me that it was just sort of some sort of weird coincidence and you didn't, you know, stopwatch no. being twice, uh, right twice in a day kind of deal. No, no, I said that after the game as well. People said, you know, how did you do Hourglass? And I just said, well, the only thing I had was this and it was decay, right? And so that, that's all I had. Yeah, I don't, maybe you're not clever we after the, all. We got, the, we, got the, we got the suffocation down, but no one could get the... the, the the hourglass, which was my fault and the card's fault. You know, there's a theory in philosophy that says that we can't be sure that people aren't just very clever automatons and the noises that they're making are not evidence of any conscious thought, but are instead the spontaneous generation of just arbitrary sounds. And we're the ones who attribute meaning to them. And I'm beginning to think that everything that you do is definitely squarely in that category. <laughs> Probably true. Uh, anyway. Let's talk about how people act during this game. And I and I think it's very much like Texas Hold'em, where you can really read people's faces and how they act when they looked at the murderer card and how at one gameplay they're, like, you know, accusing people and making things. And as soon as they turn up that murderer card, they're just, they just sit there silent and not say anything or they've got this smile on their face. And this is really the eye candy of this game is how, how people personalities change when they get the murder card and how they act differently and stuff while they play. It involves a lot of that same kind of table reading that, so, uh, you know, social deduction games have. And that's one, that's the sort of way that uh, Deception differs from Codenames and Mysterium and Dixit and all those other games, which were either co-ops or team versus team. Here it's, you know, it, the hidden roles do add that level, uh, additional level of inference. I'm not really, I always get nervous about trying to judge people based on their facial reactions, particularly because I so frequently get accused of, quote unquote, acting suspiciously when I'm in point of fact, not the murderer. But that's just because I approach the game on a different level. And like any good social deduction game, you can basically use social deduction as much or as little as you want. And the game stands on its own just in terms of the free association. But if you want to say, oh, that person's shifty, I must be, I must have to look at their cards, then you can do that. So the hidden role element, which we're going to talk a little bit more about hidden role elements generally, but it's worth noting that the hidden role element here uh, is pretty much stolen wholesale from the Resistance Avalon, right? Because there's a murderer and they pick certain evidence cards, but there's also the possibility, if you want, of introducing a witness and an accomplice. And an accomplice is just another person who knows who, who the murderer is and wins with the murderer, and so their job is to throw shade on everybody else. Uh, or indeed act suspiciously of themselves, because the witness knows collectively who the murderer and the and the accomplice are, but they don't know which one's which. But in a, if there are you know seven potential suspects and the witness knows that there are you know they get to narrow it down to two, so they know full well that accusing anybody else is a waste of time. But at the end of the game, if the good guys win, if the bad guys are able to identify who the witness is, then that win is reversed and the bad guys win. And that is a straight assassin Merlin lift from Avalon. Which is fine. I mean, it's okay. It, it work. It, the, the the idea works perfectly well. I'm just saying it's fine that it's okay that they borrow that element, uh, and it, it 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 works really nicely. And so a lot of people really enjoy that extra element of of double think involved by being the bad guys, but also having to try to figure out which which good guy is the witness. 
so that that's an, an additional level of complexity and detail that Deception really pulls off well. Yeah, I, I really feel that the extra rules are necessary when you get to a certain player count, but I really like just the basic, you know, one murderer. I think it just really works well that way, but I can see, you know, where you need the extra rules for when you increase the number for sure. What else you got for us, Walker? I have the the forensic scientist and how he makes uh, certain, you know, how his train of thought, how he gives the clues, how he thinks he's being very clear in what he's trying to say, but... And watching watching their face too when the when the investigators start going off on a completely different tangent and you can see the rage building in his face, but he's got to keep it cool because he doesn't want to give it away, of course. And I th- I really like that as well. It's a it's a very challenging role, exactly like Mysterium, be, having all of the knowledge but no ability to communicate it past these very very restrictive ways is very hard to deal with. And yeah, keeping the poker face is extremely difficult. But let's talk about what the one thing that the forensic scientist has in their their, their toolkit, because I, I, I do want to flag this. I love the game, but the events are crap. In this game, the forensic scientist, after the first round, they've, they have six clues that they're able to give to the investigators. At the start of the second and third rounds, it's a three-round game, they get to pull a new tile and replace one of the existing clues. So that's how new information enters the system. And this can be very powerful because the forensic scientist can bury a clue that people were either misinterpreting or not using enough or was just irrelevant. They weren't able to do anything clever with it. But mixed in with the set of tiles, in addition to the clues, there are these events. And some of them are just bad. So a lot of them just throw off the balance, which is which is fine, whatever. Balance in games like this is is tough to do well. One of them, for example, is just clearly better than anything else. It's draw five new cl- clues and pick whichever one you want. That's obviously just a big, uh, a big gimme for the investigators. But some of them are really, 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 really crap. For example, one of them is just you don't get a new clue this turn. Instead, you're obliged to change a clue you've already given. It's awful. This can be a situation where the forensic scientist really needs new information to enter the system. Nope, they're not allowed to do that. Instead, they're forced to change a clue. What if all the clues are good? What if they're all decent? What if you don't seriously regret any of them? You're now forced to miscommunicate information. It, it's it's In a way, it's worse than nothing. Uh, one of them, is, you know, some of the events are somebody gets a free guess or things like that. But The game is at its best when new information is coming in, and that's the best kind of round change. So basically, whenever I play the game or whenever I'm teaching the game, I just get rid of all the events. I just remove them entirely. So that's a house rule that I always play with because they're just – a lot of them are not fun. I think it almost could play better if the if the forensic scientist takes on the role of like game master, right? And if he draws an event and he feels as though I know it's you know I know they win as, along with the investigators, but if they just you know pull back and just say you know how is this game going? And they read the event and they say okay this is going to you know make it more fun or not you know or ruin the game, then they just introduce it as they see fit. I think that's probably the best way to go. Yeah, if I were more inclined towards seriously balancing the game as a competitive experience whatever that may look like, I would probably have to sit down and figure out, okay, for each player count, here's the number of cards that everyone should have. Here's the number of tiles that the investigator should draw. Because uh, some uh, some people who play the game, I know, play without events, and they're so intent on having new information into the system that they have the investigator draw two, keep one. Which is fine, and indeed, in many player counts, that's probably more balanced, because in a large table full of cards, just a sea of cards the investigator can point to. It can be a real drag when the one tile you pull has nothing on it. 
Now, maybe that means that in those player counts, you should be more careful about the roles that you include and you should be more careful about the number of cards. Anyway, but as I say, I'm usually more interested in it being a slightly more social experience and I'm not particularly upset if the balance is a little bit off one way or the other. Uh, so if you do really care about it being tightly, tightly balanced, well then, usually what you end up with is a game that's less flexible with player count. I mean, it's hard for a game like this to be equally balanced between 5 to 14 players. It's just not doable. But yeah, it's uh, sometimes, especially when playing new players, a slightly more game mastery approach might be appropriate. Right, that's all the general points I have. I just have my positive negatives. Do you have anything generally you want to add? Well, I would like to talk a little bit about the expansion which was released recently. So the expansion includes a whole bunch of new stuff. It's called Deception Undercover Allies. It has new cards, which is great. More new stuff. With the second Kickstarter, they released a whole bunch of optional region packs, which are hilariously stereotypical. Like there's the Italian pack, which includes a gondola as a murder weapon, or cause of death, more appropriately. I love the Canadian one better, the Zamboni. Yeah, the Canadian Zamboni is the best. The Canadian Zamboni is right up there. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that's equally stereotypical. The Mexico pack has a sombrero, but the American pack has blue jeans and a hamburger, you know, stuff like that. It's fine. You know me. I'm I'm usually the first to get outraged at stuff like that, but it's it's just kind of cheesy. It's got a new, it's got new roles and events. To those I say boo, I don't like the new roles and I don't like the new event. The new event is just weird. The new event offers a very, 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 very slight statistical chance of the forensic scientist winning with the murderer now. And when the only source of information into the system might start spewing random nonsense, like that's not, I can't, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not involved in that. I don't want anything, anything to do with that. But the new roles are: one is just a lift of Percival from um, the Resistance Avalon. They know who the witness is. That you know just gives a leg up to the investigators. That one's fine. Okay, I guess. One of them is a lab technician who basically gets an extra free guess, which is okay, fine. But then one is uh, the Inside Man, and the the way the Inside Man works is between rounds one and two, the inside man can select a player and that player loses their badge. So that player doesn't get to make an accusation or a guess over the course of the rest of the game. And uh, generally speaking, I recognize what kind of information this this introduces into the system and a whole bunch of, oh, where did that person lose their badge because they were on the right track or did that person lose their badge because they were on the wrong track and now we want to think that they were on the right track, whatever. That's all That's all cool. But, but what actually happens... What actually happens is it means that somebody doesn't get to play as much. Exactly. Like, you do get to play after your badge is gone, of course, but it seem, it, it's, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth to lose your agency in a game like this. Uh, and so why it's, it's, it's a close cousin to skip a turn. So why bother to say you miss your turn, lay yeah. your guy over. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. So it's, it's worth it for the new cards. It's also really worth it. I think for the uh, new location card. And let me, let me explain why just a little bit more detail. Every time you play the first six clues, four of them are random. One of them is going to be a cause of death which is the same tile every time there's six causes of death and you pick that one in every game. But then there are four different location of the murder tiles and each of them has six locations. So basically what this amounts to is every game, the forensic scientist can pick from a list of 24 locations that they can say the murder happened in. If you are relatively new to the game, or even if if you've played a few times, some of these locations can make the game almost trivial. Let me give you a case in point. Just last night, we were playing Deception, with uh, some new players, some experienced players, and the murderer picked as the means of death a pint glass. It was uh, also worth noting it was part of the Great Britain regional expansion. Uh, So they picked a pint glass as a cause of death. Fine. All well and good. What they didn't know was one of the locations on one of the four tiles is pub. 
I knew this, and I was the forensic scientist. So the moment I saw that he picked that as a murder weapon, I knew this was going to be a quick, easy game for us, the good guys. Because all I had to do was select pub, and everyone's like, oh, pint glass. And that was it. Done. Cooked. Stick a fork in him, he's done. Now, if you... So so then you're in a position that new players can sometimes get, get sidetracked that way. So the, this new location card that it introduces in the expansion, you don't use your choice of one of four location tiles. There's just one new location tile, and it's a lot more vague. Instead, it says things like business instead of listing things like a restaurant or a pub. It lists things like accessible outdoor space instead of specifically things like parking lot or park or things like that. And so it makes things a little bit harder for the good guys, but it gives a lot more latitude for the murderer so that it's not over and done with five seconds after setup, which is fine. It's a quick game. You can redeal and, and, and be on your way in no time at all. But it just encourages a little bit more ambiguity into the system in a way that I think is helpful, especially for new players. As I was going to say, that brings up another point that you really have to say when you're teaching the game that if you're the murderer, you really need to look around the table and make sure you're picking items that are common. Like you don't want to pick out, you know, things that are very unique just to you, right? You want to make sure that it's a, you know, like a a blade or something that everybody has or poison that everyone has or something that it's not going to, you know, narrow it down to you right off the beginning. Which brings us to the sub game of Deception Murder in Hong Kong, which is the way that I always teach the game. And uh, that it was actually specifically introduced in part so as to give more cover for the murderer. Because if you're not the murderer, you don't need to look at cards until the forensic scientists start giving you clues. You don't care. You don't need to look at your own cards. You don't, Well, you never really need to look at your own cards because you know that you're not the murderer. But the murderer needs to get a good sense of all the cards at the table. So at the beginning of the game, you have to tell everyone, all right, everyone, look at everyone else's cards just to give the murderer some cover, which, which, which leads to the Deception Murder in Hong Kong subgame, which is while the forensic scientist is starting, is looking at their tiles and thinking about what clues to give, and there can be pause for this, there's the sub-challenge, which is find the best band name by combining different cards in front of other people. So here are the two favorite ones that, that I have, the, the two best band names. You can share some of your best ones. There is Mad Dog Flute, which I think would be a great Jethro Tull cover band name. So if you're a Jethro Tull cover band, by all means, you can use Mad Dog Flute. But the all-time best band name, and the credit goes out to Scott Sheffield, who totally knocked the ball out of the park on this one, Scorpion Panties. They were very, very big in the 1980s. I hear they're they're considering a reunion tour in Budokan. And obviously everything after their third album was just just, just terrible. Their onstage presence blows you away. Oh, of course. They still have it. I mean, they're 67 years old uh, on average. But, uh, you know, Scorpion Panties puts on a show like nobody else does. That's fantastic. One of the great parts of the game. All right, I'm just going to go over my positives now. Great components for what it does. Like you said, all the like very unique cards all have, some of them are very humorous, like, you know, shark lasers and all sorts of very funny, hilarious weapons. The expansion roll cards don't match the base game roll cards, though, and that angers me greatly. Uh, they're a little bit different. On they're the really different. <laughs> yeah, but they're, it's sort of, the, it's not something that's going to affect gameplay. Yeah, you just think. you just have to make sure that nobody pays too much attention to the, the, the roll cards that everyone else was given at the start of the game. The forensic scientist really needs to keep the pace going. You know, he's got to make sure that he's in control of the game. Uh, very easy to teach and, you know, set up and tear down. Very easy as well. And the only negatives I have is like we've already talked about. You know, if the murderer picks things that are just common to him, then it's going to be a very short game. Yeah, it's a very fragile game competitively, just in terms of, you know, how the murderer acts, how lucky the forensic scientist gets in terms of their pulls, how good the forensic scientist is. Sometimes people make lucky guesses or some people just, you know, 
a misinterpretation takes hold of the table. Because the game is so quick, because the game is so accessible, it's hard to take those failings too seriously. It is even more accessible than Mysterium. It is uh, about as accessible as Cone Dames. I don't think it's quite as universal in its appeal. It's a little more gamey than uh, Code Names is. A little bit, you know, a few more rules. The hidden rules sometimes confuse people, so maybe it's not as accessible as all that. Uh, but still, as far as games like this go, you, it is definitely in the top tier and uh, I've played it dozens and dozens of times literally and although there have been disappointing sessions I, I definitely look forward to the future ones yep I've never had a bad experience well one that would stop me from playing again yeah like you can have I think I think the way to put it and I think you'd agree there have been bad games there have been bad sessions but rarely bad experiences correct yeah that is deception murder in Hong Kong so let's talk a little bit about hidden game states, because one of the key advantages that Deception has, or one of the key differences that Deception has over games like Mysterium and Codenames, is it's not a team-based game, it's a hidden role game. And hidden roles are one of the key ways, I think, that you can uh, really introduce interesting hidden game states. We're probably at some point in the future going to talk about things like hidden trackable information and hidden scoring. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about situations where uh, there's some deliberate secrecy on the part of one or two people around the table instead of just a team-based system. And what, let me just start talking about what I love most about situations like this. Information asymmetry in a game can often produce very, very interesting experiences. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit in terms of uh, the resistance and the development that the resistance has in terms of hidden roles by introducing Merlin and the assassin. So in the resistance, which is by far the best social deduction game ever, anyone who disagrees is wrong, one side has all the knowledge and the other side has all the power. Uh, because generally speaking, what you do in social deduction games, you have a small number of people, like in Deception, which would be the murderer and the accomplice, or in the case of the Resistance, the spies, they know who everybody is, but there's so few of them that they don't have enough power to really run the table. So they have to be, they have to be sneaky. Now, what the Assassin and Merlin mechanic introduced in the Resistance Avalon is it kind of inverts that. Now, suddenly, you have a good person who's part of the majority who has all the information they ever need, but they need to be secret and sneaky about it. And you also introduce a member of the minority team on the bad guys who needs to figure something out. And so now what you do by virtue of these hidden roles is you have layers upon layers. It's not just the case that you have to pretend to be ignorant like everybody else, but you have to pretend to be ignorant like everybody else while working to pursue your own private objectives and while trying to suss out information that is different from the information that everyone else is trying to suss out. And so whether you're, you know, Merlin, the assassin or the, the you know, the murderer in, in deception, I really, really like these added layers of information management that I think really can add a lot to the experience. Yeah, like the the interaction between the people, the arguing, you know, debating, you know, what's what. That's that's the part I really enjoy about these social deduction games. I'm not, uh, I really don't enjoy them that much, but I really enjoy deception. What I'm wondering, that if it's like the randomness is taken out, right, because everything is already drawn out. Everything's on the table. You just don't know what it is. So I'm wondering if it's because that part of the game state is fixed. And so it's not out of your control anymore. So I'm really wondering why games like Werewolf and these other social games, they change that, right? Where the, where it can be anything, you know what I mean? Where that, where that randomness is put back in, right? You know, I'm wondering why they do that. Again, like I say, it's managing that kind of information. I really find interesting. What I don't find interesting is not knowing what my role is or not knowing whether my role has changed or not knowing where any number of other random game states have, have managed yeah, to, or to not mess knowing, like, up. you know, your 
I just hate when you're striving towards an outcome, right? You're, you're basing all your logic on on trying to get to a certain, you know, winning state, but it means nothing to you because you're totally on the other team or... You yeah, know, you, you it, don't even know what the victory conditions are. You yeah, don't even know what your winning state is. Yeah, I, I, anytime you reintroduce that randomness, like the one-night games, like Masquerade, anytime where your hidden role can be moved around, I don't, I don't tend to like it. Actually, the part where it offends me the most is in games like Shadows Over Camelot, Battlestar Galactica, Dead of Winter, games where there might be a traitor, but there might not be. And what this is to me, and I said before, I've said it before and I, I mean it, I don't think that balance in co-op games needs to be particularly balanced on a knife edge, but at the point where you've designed a co-op game and you say, okay, the victory conditions are going to be the same, whether there's a traitor or not, whether it's the case that everybody's working on the same side or not, because in these games, basically the shadows over Camelot and its descendants, either there's going to be, there's the number of traitors is random. In the case of uh, shadows over Camelot, it's zero or one. In Battlestar Galactica, you're going to have a variable number of Cylons. That's even independent of the whole uh, sympathizer mechanic, which was just nonsense out the box. When you said Battlestar Galactica, I threw up a little bit in my mouth. I'm sorry. What yeah, yeah, that, that, that's quite all right. It's, uh, I assure you that, that, that blood is spurting from various orifices on my part. Uh, it's, it, what, it, what it shows you is that the, the game state has not been very carefully calibrated because either everyone's working together or not. And typically in games like that, this is not an, an inherent uh, product of the, the, the random number of traders, but... I think if you're going to have a hidden role game, you need to make sure that it's sufficiently open that it's not it doesn't become a game about policing proper play because that's where I think things get it can really fall apart. In games like the 3 that I just mentioned, many of the moves are public and many of your turns are then immediately scrutinized by everyone around the table. And what this does is it really reinforces the so-called quarterbacking problem, right? If you're sitting, and I, I see this every time I see people play, playing Battlestar Galactica. Thankfully, I'm not part of it anymore. I, you know, I had my few experiences. I've done my time. I've been through that particular circle of hell. But it's always the same. You get five people around the table, and the moment anyone slightly deviates from the universally acknowledged way that proper play works, they're like, oh, okay, you must be a Cylon. Because, you know, they, they figured things out, and there's this, tiny little path that you can tread so a lot of these semi-co-op games really falls apart this is one of the reasons actually why a, a game called new angeles which i quite enjoy has uh, tends to fall apart in a lot of groups it's very group dependent because new angeles looks like a semi-co-op game but it's not it is a strictly competitive game where all of you might lose by virtue of some weirdness going on so obviously yes you all have to cooperate to prevent the weirdness but it's not semi-co-op you all have to ruthlessly pursue your own interests and then maybe someone will betray you at the end and cause the weirdness to happen. But anyway, I generally have difficulty with semi-co-ops. I find they don't tend to work. But team-based games, like your social deduction games, they tend to do it really well. There's one game that does hidden roles pretty well, I think, in a non-social deduction space and in a non-semi-co-op way, and that's uh, a game called Homeland. It's actually a, a licensed game, which I know is usually terrible. I don't like a whole lot of the other Gale Force 9 licensed games, but I, I do like Homeland a fair bit. And the way that it works, uh, simply put, is yes, there's kind of sort of traitor person in that there's someone who's given a terrorist role, but they've done a reasonably clever job of making sure that the everyone else on the so-called good guys have reasonably varying objectives themselves. 
Uh, and that's through the introduction of another uh, hidden role who's kind of sort of a good guy, but not as much of a good guy, namely the political opportunist. And uh, in, in a very cynical kind of bit of, of almost satire in Homeland, as the political opportunist, you like it when terrorist plot succeeds because that gives you credibility. Because now you get to go to the public and say, oh, well, you know, all these terrible things happen. You have to trust us. You have to give us more power. So uh, that helps mitigate a little bit of the everyone has to tread this very, very narrow path or you're immediately going to be assumed to be a terrorist. Uh, so it, 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 it can be done, but I've seen it done very rarely. What, what have your experiences been in games like that? I'm gonna, I, Homeland, we played it the once. I loved it. I was thinking about my example is going to be incognito. You're also given all roles. You're either going to be, you know, Professor Fiddlebottom or Madame Zaza. It's a great role system, and you're all given an aspect, like which means what size you are, and you have to move around the board. It's always brought up in quirky game components. It's got this great mask that you flip down and gives you a color of where to move, and, and it's got a great deduction system which I really love, right? There's only four sizes, there's only four roles, there's only four letters, and once you know what you are and what other person is, and then it's it's I think it's a fabulous game. If you haven't tried Incognito, it's definitely one you need to try out. Yeah, so Incognito is is often mentioned as a sort of classic of deduction, and I haven't tried it yet, largely for the reason that I'm not really into deduction games. And that 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 this is actually a good segue into hidden movement games where one, it's not so much that the role is hidden. Everyone knows who the, uh, the culprit is, but they're doing things secretly. I'm thinking of games like Spectre Ops, like Fury of Dracula, like even my favorite of the genre, Nuns on the Run, which was, you know, it's got a great title. Scotland Yard, Letters to Whitechapel. Yes, absolutely. The reason why I'm not so big on hidden movement games is it, it, it combines actually a number of game design elements that I really, really tend not to like. And these are all personal preferences. One of them is deduction. I tend not to like deduction games because they, uh, I, I don't really like logic puzzles that have no social element to them. They are 1v all games, generally, and I don't like 1 versus all games. They tend to have relatively, a lot of them line, uh, rest on line of sight rules. And I don't like parsing line of sight. I'm a miniatures gamer. I like being able to squat and say, yeah, yeah, this person can see that other person. Done. And, uh, you know, unless you have a really, really simple set of line of sight rules, it can lead into the other problem, which is small errors or small misinterpretations on the part of one player can ruin the game entirely. And I've seen lots of sessions fall apart. I'm not talking about cheating. Cheating can ruin any game. Don't play with cheaters. I've never had a problem with that. But it's just sincere rules misinterpretations can just ruin it. Also, a lot of them involve note-taking. I don't like paperwork in my games, especially if the game doesn't need paperwork. And so as a result, I've never really found one that really sings. And then some of them have, just as a, as a minor grievance, additionally, Fury of Dracula has possibly my least favorite card in uh, all of board gaming, which is that reset card. It's like you're playing this game, and maybe you've been playing for two hours, and you're narrowing down where Dracula could be, and then he plays, oh, reset, and then everything goes away. Yeah, I can be anywhere now. Let's yeah. start over again. Yeah, and I, I think I'd be less down on that card if I knew that it was in the deck. But when we, when the first time I played Fury of Dracula, everyone discovered it at the same time, and it was just the situation where the Dracula player looked at it, <laughs> squinted for a while, and said, "This is going to be some nonsense." But uh, screw you guys! And then everyone got frustrated. Yeah, it's like where everyone picks up the card and <laughs> reads it a couple times. Like, what? What were they thinking? What? What does this say exactly? Is disbelief. Yeah, which I think dovetails with uh, one of the things we said in passing about Rising Sun. Sometimes it's clear that right at the outset, everyone at the table needs to know the existence of some cards. And I think that rulebooks should do a slightly better job of doing that. You don't have to tell me how to teach the game. You don't need to tell me even, you don't even have to load me down with strategy notes. But just a simple little sidebar that's saying, you know, pro tip, it's a good idea if all the players know about this thing that exists in the system would be very, very helpful. 
But you're you're a you're a bigger fan of Fury of Dracula than I am, though. I think you uh, you went in and got the third edition. Yeah, for sure. No, I really I really enjoy it. I really like how the combat works. How I really like the the hidden movement games. You know, parsing it out. But it really falls into quarterbacking. I'm afraid it's where it's where if someone really knows the game and knows you know the where it can move, it's like well he can be here, here, and here. So your only logical place is you all well, you have to move here to cut him off type thing. It's it really leads. It really is a two-player experience i think in essence there i know there's some ways you can probably you know reduce that but it's one of these experience games where you know if you if you know the game you have to be aware that you can potentially quarterback it and you have to make sure you pull yourself back and let other people enjoy the experience as well i find that problem is pretty common in one versus all games it's one of the reasons why i don't tend to like them with with some rare exceptions there's one hidden role game that uh and actually i've, I've, I've talked about this before where it initially I thought that it was an interesting variation, but I'm less I'm less keen on it. And, that, and that's Secret Hitler. Secret Hitler, you know, takes this sort of uh, hidden role idea one step further. And it's not just the case that some of you are bad guys. One of you is the uber bad guy around whom a lot of the game depends. Without going into too much detail, in uh, Secret Hitler, someone at the start of the game is Secret Hitler. And if they're elected chancellor, then the game immediately ends and the bad guys win. On the other hand, if they're assassinated, the game immediately ends and the good guys win. Initially, I thought this was just, you know, another interesting asymmetry. But in point of fact, I think it goes a little bit too far and resets things. Because the identity of Hitler is of such high stakes for the game, it is entirely in Hitler's interest to just act straight 100% of the time. It is the, the, the calculus, the risk calculus is so grave that any time they could stick their neck out to help their own team, it's not in their interest to do so. And so they just have to hope for the random shot of appearing so trustworthy that they get elected. And I've seen more and more and more games of Secret Hitler just devolve into a Hitler just playing it 100% straight and trustworthy. And or and this leads to another unfortunate aspect. It even evolves into more awfulness where the good guys start trying to assassinate random people. Like, well, I could assassinate this person who's obviously untrustworthy. Or this other person seems too trustworthy, so I'll just kill someone at random, which is just not... I don't have much sympathy for people who try for moonshots instead of sure things anyway. That's just a, a conservatism thing. But uh, I've seen a lot of random innocents get shot just because they were playing, quote-unquote, too well. It's like the inverse of the Battlestar Galactica problem. It's like, oh, you are only making the right moves, so clearly you can't be trusted. Eh, not a fan. True that. I have a point here about, you know, watching, you know, watching the sway watching the one person controlling the table and using the ticks and using the way people say certain words or how they present their sentence and watching the conversation sway in one direction and then the other. I, that's what I really like about it sometimes. And sometimes it can be very frustrating as well. Sure, but that's that's the that's the specific benefit that hidden role games actually offer because neither of us like uh, quarterbacking very much. But that having been said, we don't tend to find a persistent problem. Like we can play Pandemic without quarterbacking, no problem. We play lots of co-op games without quarterbacking. But there are some that lend itself to that kind of problem. And hidden roles are a great way of blunting the influence of one overbearing, dominating personality, precisely because that helps to, number one, sow distrust. And number two, if well done in games like this, there's always that element that you get to control and no one else gets to tell you what to use. For example, in Deception, someone else may be running the table and convincing everybody that, that a particular murder weapon is a thing, but you have your badge. That is your accusation. No one can take that from you unless you play with a bad role that we, t that we discussed, <laughs> but don't play with that bad role. And so everyone can try to persuade you, but at the end of the day, your accusation is your accusation. You get to do with it as you will. And of course, 
if you're the murderer, you get to use that accusation to misdirect people as as much as you like. So a good hidden role game can really, in addition to introducing the social dynamics, blunt the influence of quarterbacking. All right, so Mark, that's all I've got on hidden information. Do you have anything else? No, that's that's about all we've got to say about hidden game states. And uh, with the ending of our topic, that closes us out for another episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook. Our So Very Wrong About Games page on Facebook is it's where we keep most of our discussion. Feel free to drop us a line there with feedback or requests or anything else you'd like to tell us. We read everything you send us, and we try to get back to as many of you as you can. If you'd like to contact any of us individually, you can email walker at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me, Mark Bigney, I mean Mike Bigney. My name is Mike now. My name isn't Mark. You can reach me on Twitter at all the games you like. Thank you very much again for joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. Next time. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.